Let's turn now to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is what we're doing these days at Reformation Bible Church. We are on Sunday mornings working our way through this little New Testament letter that is surprising me. I shouldn't be surprised after all these years. I was just saying to Carissa, my wife, last night that I've just been startled by how timely this letter is. I shouldn't be, but I've just been amazed um, just how timely this letter is for my life, for the days that we are living on in, for what's going on in, in the professing church at large, for the temptations that we face in this day. This letter could not be more timely. We're going to look together this morning, specifically at verses 19 through 21 of chapter 1. But I'm going to begin uh, up in verse 12 of chapter 1. That'll just help us with the context. I want to read beginning in verse 12. This is God's word. Peter, carried along by the Holy Spirit, wrote, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. For know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Amen. God has spoken. Let's now ask him to help us understand what he has spoken. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pause as a habit, yes, but sincerely and earnestly. We know the difference between uh, reading your Bible or hearing it preached and it kind of just passing through our ears and hearing the Bible preached and read and it passing through our ears to our mind and piercing our heart and our soul. We're asking for that this morning. We pray that this day that would be a, a, a day, and maybe in the lives of some here, it could be 10, 20, 50 years from now, if you tarry, Lord Jesus, that truths learned in part this morning would cause a generation 
of your people in this little place at this time to stand firm in the face of the onslaught of darkness that is here. So equip us, teach us, we ask for Jesus' honor and glory. Amen. Peter, in this little letter, has told us that his death is imminent. His life is about over. He's not shocked by that. He was told by the Lord Jesus many years earlier, in fact, before Christ even ascended, that that he would die a martyr. His time's coming, and as a pastor, and like a loving father, he's, he's concerned and he is looking to equip the believers to whom he is writing, to live in what he calls down in verse 19, a dark place. Peter knows that the last days, as Paul said, difficult times will come. He knew that things would not get brighter. He knew that things would not get better. He understood that scriptures spoke frequently about in the last days, there being increasing rebellion, increasing darkness, increasing unbelief. And he is deeply concerned as a pastor, as a spiritual father, that those who have been under his care and under his teaching, who have learned to trust him, would remember after he dies to never, ever abandon the plain, clear teaching of Scripture that in light of what the scripture says about the coming of the power and glory of the Lord Jesus, verse 16, that men and women who profess faith in Christ, who claim the gospel, would in fact live lives that are previews of the kingdom. Men and women who redeemed from the darkness, brought into the domain of light of the kingdom of Christ, even though Christians, even though still beset with a fallen, sinful nature and still sinning, that, in, that believers in Jesus Christ, that Christ's people, would not believe the lie that because you've received grace, you can live how you want, but rather would live holy lives. That would be diligent. He repeats that word. He uses that word frequently would work and persevere and be diligent to trust the word, to pay attention to the word, and to live in light of the last days. You you can see this near the close of the letter, right at the end of the letter, chapter 3, verse 17. Turn there if you want. I just want to orient you this morning to Peter's overall purpose. He says, You therefore, beloved Knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall away from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says up in verse 14, since you look for these glorious things in the future, be diligent to be found by him spotless and blameless in peace. So Peter is concerned. He's calling believers in his generation and in this generation right now to wake up, to not believe the the party line that's out there that Satan has pitched, that has infiltrated the professing church, that 
the grace of God, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is primarily for your comfort and for you to have a good little comfortable life here and now and and never mind what the Bible says about the future and the glory of the kingdom and and all that you know that's just too hard and and that's a lie Peter's saying pay attention verse 19 pay attention to this word but to set up this passage this morning verses 19 through 21 I I want to kind of put it in context I want to tell you how important this is for you. I mean, I know you know it's important because it's in the Bible, but I want to ask you a few questions. Why would you, in this time and in the coming days, why would you be willing to be thought by others around you to be a bigot? Why would you be willing to be judged because you you insist that there is, in fact, created by God, male and female. Why would you not go along with so-called Pride Month? Why would you tell people the truth that homosexuality is sin, an abomination to God? Why would you risk losing your job for that? Maybe even by your sitting in a sermon this morning and you're worried your boss is going to find out that you were sitting at that sermon. You heard that preacher preach or that text and that may cause problems for you. It may not this morning. It's probably going to at some point. Why would you hold the line? Why would you risk being misunderstood by your family members and loved ones? Why would you care about living your life carefully Why would you care about not lying when everybody else thinks, well, it's just really not a big deal. I mean, you know, just just kind of bend it a little bit. Why would you insist on, no, you're going to be a man or woman that tells the truth? Why would you be careful in a culture with a sea of entertainment that is, frankly, blood and immorality? Why would you be careful about what you watch? Why would you be careful about what you listen to? in spite of the fact that people are going to call you Puritans or legalistic or whatever the case may be. Why why would you care? Why would you actually um, pay attention and care about the future, the coming of Christ and the judgment of this world and the kingdom of God and Christ on this earth? Why would you pay attention to what the Bible says about that? Why, Why all these things? you got to know the answer to that. And if you are unclear on that, you're going to fold. We are living right now. I mean right now. This is different. I know we say there's nothing new under the sun. This is different right now. This is new. New under the sun. Wickedness is not new. Sin is not new and all that. But with technology, with with what's going on in our world, um, having a nation that dedicates an entire month to transgenderism that's new and understand and others like Al Mohler our president of Southern Seminary are making this clear and I agree wholeheartedly you understand that that is an attempt to make you know you have to bow you better concede it's not all the positive spin that it's made to be so why are you going to hold the line 
Why are you going to be willing to misunderstood? Why are you going to lose your job, maybe? Why are you going to be marked out? Why are you maybe, maybe, at some point, do jail time? You better know the answer to that. And it better not be fuzzy. And the answer is here in chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. The answer is because the Bible, the scriptures, are the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, binding word of Almighty God. That's why. Because the Bible is God's word, and it is binding. And it is clear. We're going to look at that this morning. The nature of God's word. But I wanted to set it in context. We are not this morning having a nice, comfortable conversation about the nature of the Bible and God's word. And that's easy for us. I mean, you wouldn't be at a church like this if you didn't believe in the Bible. You wouldn't be at a church like this if you didn't believe it was God's word. And so I, I want to, at the outset this morning, help you understand You are, and if not you, the young people here this morning, you're going to pay for your belief in this book. You are going to pay. You already are, some of you, but you are going to. You know it. So why would you pay that price? How do you know that this isn't just religion? And that idea, by the way, of just, you know, it's, it's oh, that's nice, you're a Christian. Uh, that is going by the wayside. Tell them what you believe. Tell them what your church teaches. See how the response will be. So why? Why should believers in Jesus Christ endure these dark days? How, and more than that, how can, we? how can we? How can we endure these dark days? How can we get through these times? We who are parents and, and concerned, we, we wonder, how, how can our kids get through these days? And I want you who are young here, I don't, want you to be, I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to be confident. I want to tell you this morning, you absolutely, you who love the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't need to be afraid. You have absolutely everything you need to live through these days. And I want to tell you something. It's actually a privilege that God had you to be born in this time in this place. He has counted you among some of the the most honored among all his people because the greater the darkness, the more the light shines, and the more the pressure and the persecution, the greater the opportunity for honor and glory to stand for Christ. So yeah, it's hard, but you ought to relish this opportunity. This is an incredible privilege right now. So let's stop moaning and groaning about the good old days. And by when were those good old days? Help me. When was it so good on earth? And I I understand those of us who are older, we see the decay in our nation. I get it. But this was never a Christian nation. Sorry. I digress. Let's get back to the text. So why? Why should we live in such a way that we are willing to suffer? And how can we live in these dark days? Peter tells us. Peter tells us how in chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Why should we live holy lives? 
and be willing to suffer. Number one, I have just three reasons here this morning. Number one, the Bible is absolutely trustworthy. The Bible is absolutely trustworthy. The classic theological language, it is inerrant. That is, it's without error. It, it, it's truthful in everything it says. And it's infallible. In other words, what it says shall come to pass, will come to pass. Peter has just, in verses 16 through 18, been telling those to whom he's writing, I did not, we, the apostles, in verse 16, he's referring to the apostles, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we told you about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was in vogue at that time, and it is in vogue at this time, to diminish, downplay, and even ridicule what the Bible has to say about the coming of Christ and future things. Because that allows false teachers and selfish, carnal men and women to just focus on here and now and not worry about such things like a glorious kingdom. I mean, if you really believe that Jesus is the king, if you really believe what we sang in that hymn, this is my father's world, the battle is not done, that Jesus will come and have the victory. If you really believe that Jesus is going to be king over all the earth, that you are going to live either in his kingdom or be condemned to hell, it's going to change how you live. It's going to change because you are going to stand before him and give an account for what you did with his gospel about repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's going to ask, so what'd you do with my law? What'd you do with my word? What'd you do with my commands? Well, I, I don't know, Lord. I, I, I guess I thought, boy, the teaching about your coming was a little too difficult. And after all, who can agree? And and, you know, I just was so caught up with my week. And, you know, I mean, you, Lord, you knew my week. I mean, my week's so full. I mean, yeah, sure. How's he going to respond? God has told us in his scriptures about the glorious things to come. Peter's going to say that he is with all believers looking for the new heavens and the new earth. Peter's faith was fixed on the promises of God about the future. But in his day, there were false teachers rising up who were saying, ah, don't worry about it. And by the way, the gospel is really just for your comfort. And, uh, you know, grace means now that you don't have to really trouble yourself too much about what's pleasing to God. It's a lie. And Peter has, in chapter 1, verse 17, testified. Now, you know, we're not talking about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus. This isn't fairy tales. This isn't fiction. We saw, he says, on the holy mountain. We don't know exactly which mountain that was. We saw Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth lit like fire. We looked at that last Sunday morning. He became, his clothing became brilliant white. He was revealed to be 
the Messiah, the promised one, this one prophesied in Daniel 7 who goes up to the Ancient of Days and receives a kingdom from God that will have no limit and will have no end. Peter's saying, I'm not talking about fiction here. I saw with my eyes, along with James and John, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Messiah. You can't tell me that the kingdom of God and the glorious things to come is fairy tales. I saw the king. But again, we might think, well, Peter, that's, wow, that must have been something. I I wish I could have been there. You know, maybe if I saw Jesus lit up, blazing light, his eyes like fire, I might be changed too. And the answer is no, no, actually, because, I mean, I'm not saying it wouldn't impact us. I'm sure it it would. But what Peter says, it's remarkable in verse 19. He says that more certain and trustworthy than the eyewitness account of not one but three apostles, more trustworthy than that, is the Holy Scriptures themselves. He's, there's some question as to whether, is, is Peter saying, because Peter, James, sorry, James, John, and I saw a, a preview of the fulfillment of Daniel 7, I want you guys to know that actually the prophetic word is, is all the more sure. I don't, that's not what he's doing. He's saying to the believers, I have eyewitness testimony and James and John can back it up and of course in the scriptures two or three witnesses is critical and of course even in our law system today it's important to have witnesses right so Peter there was three witnesses of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ a preview of his glory and Peter is saying but we have even more certain even more sure the prophetic word, verse 19. Well, what is that prophetic word? We need to ask for a moment. I've said that the Bible is absolutely trustworthy. Is that what Peter's talking about? Yes. Look at verse 20. Because know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture. No prophecy of Scripture. He's talking about Scripture. He's talking about the written word of God. He's calling the men and women to whom he is writing to pay heed to the scriptures. Look over to chapter 3, verse 2. He's writing that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, that's the New Testament. The New Testament wasn't completed at the writing of this letter, but Peter is talking about the word of God. Verse 5, he's talking about false teachers um, wondering about God's and Christ's coming. And he says when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed. Verse 7, but by God's word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved. Verse 13, according to God's promise, that's the scriptures, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth. That's a reference to Isaiah 66. So 
Verse 16, he talks about distorting some of Paul's writings as they do the rest of scriptures. So the prophetic word that is more sure than even three eyewitnesses of the transfiguration of Christ is the Bible. He's talking about the scriptures. And yes, he may be referring maybe more particular in the immediate context to those portions of the Bible that speak about the future things. But what applies to those prophetic, specific prophecies about the future is true of the entire word. So he's teaching here about the nature of Scripture, of the Bible. The Bible is absolutely trustworthy. You have, we have the prophetic word made more sure. It is the more sure word. In fact, it can't be made more sure. It's true that, of course, Peter's testified. You have three apostles who are saying and being put on record, we saw Jesus transfigured. And, And they're writing it down. That's three witnesses. And certainly that should impact us. But what he's directing the original readers of this letter to and we who are here this morning to is the fact that the Bible inscripturated word of God is actually more certain, more trustworthy than if you even had three apostolic eyewitnesses of the transfiguration of Christ. Because you could say, well, you know, maybe your eyesight wasn't good. (laughs) Maybe your ears when you heard this is my beloved son, when God said that, Father, concerning Jesus. Maybe your hearing isn't good. Maybe your sight isn't good. Maybe your memory isn't good. But you can't say that about the written word of God. It is absolutely trustworthy. Absolutely trustworthy. It is the more certain, the most certain word. The most sure word. This book is more certain and more real, more than anything in your life. I'm not saying things in your life are a mirage. What I'm saying is there are days when we don't know what's up and what's, you know, down. This world is crazy. The lies and the confusion. And and if we are honest, we we know our, our own minds can be confused sometimes. Not this book, not this word. Scriptures cannot be more sure because they are absolute truth on the nature of their being God's word what the scriptures what the bible says has been has been what God says about the creation of the world what God said about the flood this is not fiction this is not theory this really happened this is the way things have been this is a record of history you know, in the 1800s, 1700s, 1800s, particular through liberal German scholars, um, believing Christians felt they had to defend the historicity, for example, of the kings of Israel. There were all these liberal German scholars saying that certain kings didn't really exist. David maybe didn't really exist. There was no Israelite kingdom. And wouldn't you know it that with the development of archaeology in the late 1800s and 1900s, Now, even among liberal scholarship, no one denies that there was an Israelite kingdom in that region at that time because you keep finding archaeological records with the names of various Israelite kings 
It's undeniable. Well, go figure. The Bible said that all along. What it says has been, has been. Its account of history is absolutely accurate. And what it says will be, shall be. That's the uniqueness of God's word. It is absolutely trustworthy. So when the Bible says that something is going to take place, or this is the way things are, that is the way things are, and that is the way things will be. The Bible is inerrant and infallible. It is, as Isaiah recorded, when God said about his word, listen to this, Isaiah 55, verse 10, God says, as rain and snow comes down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout. My uh, brother just told me yesterday, um, was we texting back and forth, that um, where they live in Virginia is under a severe drought right now. I mean, usually this time of year, everything's green. I mean, just there's a lot of rain. Where they live, it just hasn't seen rain and everything's turning brown. Well, what about here? It's pretty green out there right now, isn't it? Uh, In fact, those guys who are waiting to mow their fields and get some hay are wondering when the sun's going to shine. It's just a principle. It rains, and if it's warm enough, and if there's sun, we just know what's going to happen. Something's going to grow. Whether it's grass or weeds, it's going to grow. And God says, as that is true of creation generally, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. God says, my word will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. What God says will come to pass, will come to pass. What this means is you really want to think before you just go along with the party line because right now the dominant voice is that's not the way things have to be that's not the way things really are it's not really male and female there's a spectrum God created them male and female he created them in his image they created them take your pick But you really want to think about that because what the Bible says is on the last day, if you don't pick wisely and stand by the absolute certainty of of God's word, you're not only going to have egg on your face and shame, you're going to be judged. You want to always, always, always count on what God's word says is true in the face of all naysayers, in the face of all mockery and ridicule, and whatever comes along, God's word is absolutely trustworthy. It is the more sure word. Secondly, this morning, we learn from Peter that the Bible is God-given. It is the word of God. This may be better stated But he says this in verse 20. It's absolutely trustworthy. It's a more sure word. Why? Because unlike his testimony of the transfiguration, which is Peter, James, and John's word, the scriptures 
are not the testimony of Peter, James, or John. Merely the scriptures are the very word of God. He says, know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's interpretation. In other words, what you find in the Bible is not some men sitting down and saying, you know, wow, I want to be a little creative today. Um, what, what, what's in my heart? What do I feel like? And I'll put it down and maybe God will think he can put it in his book. No, it's not a matter of interpretation. It's not a matter of feeling or impulse. He says emphatically, verse 21, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Bible is God speaking. Yes, Peter wrote this letter. But over and above and behind and in Peter is the very Spirit of God. It is the Word of God. It doesn't mean, this is confusing to some in terms of, this, is, this means that the Bible is inspired. But even that word is a little bit confusing because when we think of inspire, we think of um, kind of you know, a movement or an impulse or a general feeling And that's not what Peter is saying. He is saying that the scriptures are given by God in such a way that the Spirit of God was literally carrying men along in their mind as they spoke and then wrote what was God's word. This is the mystery of of the Bible. It doesn't mean either that God like took over their minds and they kind of, you know, just closed their eyes and blanked out and started writing, you know, like a robot, right? That's not the biblical view of uh, scripturation. It's the mystery that God used real men with various personalities, different vocabularies. Isaiah has the most extensive vocabulary of any prophet in the Old Testament. That's Isaiah. He was the Shakespeare of the Old Testament. God used Isaiah, but God also used Hosea, as we're learning in Sunday nights. He used different men, different men to write his word. Peter's writing this letter. He's going to write a little bit later about Paul, and he wrote his letters. And Peter's letters are Peter's letters, and Paul's letters are Paul's letters, and Peter and Paul's, and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea's are all the Word of God. The Bible is God-given. That's a staggering claim in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. The Bible, the Scriptures, are the very Word of God. We say it so much, this is the Word of God, this is God's Word, that we can become accustomed to it. But that is an amazing claim. And the only reason why you would suffer for the faith, only reason why you would suffer in these dark days for being a Christian, the only reason why you would pursue a life of holiness is if, in fact, this book actually is what it says it is, the very words expressing the mind of God. Thirdly, this morning, in light of this, in light of the fact that the Bible is absolutely trustworthy 
in light of the fact that the Bible is God-given, it is the word of God. Thirdly and finally, the Bible is singularly sufficient. Singularly sufficient. Sufficient meaning that it is able and, and solely able to accomplish God's purposes in us and to keep us in these dark and evil days. And it is singularly so. In other words, it's not one of the options. You can't be a Christian and say, well, you know, I, I, you're really a Bible person. or Boy, that's really a Bible teaching church. That's good. You know, as if, as if there's an option, as if there's like a range. Like you can have Bible Christians and, you know, music Christians and, you know, Hallmark card Christians. No, Christians are Bible people. And if it's a Christian church, it's a Bible reading, Bible singing, Bible teaching, Bible preaching church. The Bible is singularly sufficient. There's none other like it. In verse 19 is what I'm I'm drawing your attention to. Peter says, you have, we have in the Bible, the prophetic word, the scriptures, more sure, more sure again than, than even the eyewitness account of the three apostles. Your Bible in your hands is more certain than that. And in light of that, we do well to pay attention Notice that Peter is encouraging there, but he's, he's loading your conscience. And, and faithful pastors do that very carefully, very rarely. Uh, faithful pastors don't load your heart up with, with all these burdens so that you go out of church being like, oh man, you know, that's, that's Islam. That's Mormonism, that's, that's works righteousness religions. So when God, through his word, after telling us about the grace that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter has, when Peter, who loves his people like a loving pastor, says concerning the Bible, and he says it this way, to which you do well to pay attention He has a loving father. He's putting his hand, as it were, on your chest and saying, you stick to this book. In other words, he's binding your conscience. This is not a suggestion. He is is saying, you need to pay attention to this book individually, but also together. Think about it. When Peter's originally writing this letter, most of the people he's writing to actually don't have their own copy of the Bible. So hard for us to remember that. We have so many copies of the Bible, we just think everybody always had one. No, that was actually pretty rare. So, so certainly this means if you have the privilege of having your own Bible and you're able to read the Bible in your own language, it certainly means you read it, you memorize it, you, you seek to study it and understand it. But there is also a particularly binding application upon us as a people. We as a church need to pay attention to this book. Because that's the only way that in the New Testament, when Peter was writing, they would, have, they would have actually had to come together. They would have had to heard the scriptures read. It would have been an incredibly precious thing because any copy of the Bible would have been handwritten, hand-copied at that time. So there might have only been one copy among them or two at the most. And they would get together and someone would read that Bible and they would listen carefully, hanging on every word. And then they would want one of their elders or their pastors to stand up and to read it and to explain it and to teach them and to exhort with it. 
Mark that with today in our churches. Our churches today, professing churches, are, can we please have less Bible, less Bible, less Bible, less Bible? What is the most minimum preaching and reading of God's word we can possibly do? Because, you know, we got things to do. we got lots of things to do, except actually get ready for the coming in the kingdom of Christ. It's a lie from the pit of hell. And so we're trying, we're trying. If you notice around here, we're trying, we're trying with what we can to keep the Bible before you. Read it, read it, read it. Get you studying it, getting it, teaching it. I, yeah. I long for the day. You, you know when there'll be a revival? When there'll be a revival? Is when a church like this is so moved in its heart, loves God's word, become so hungry in light of the darkness around that the members start getting together and saying, you know what, we really, um, this isn't enough. We, um, we're paying this guy. I mean, we, sh- we should, we should, we need the Bible more. So you'll be a revival when the people are actually asking for more reading and preaching of God's word. And that's happened actually in history. In fact, the Protestant Reformation, that's what it was. Pay attention. That is, the, that is the exhortation of this text. Pay attention. Why? Because this word is like a lamp shining in a dark place. What a beautiful phrase. We sometimes think of Paul in the New Testament as the one who has the, has the beautiful phrases. But here in verse 19, Peter has, to me, one of the most beautiful sentences in the entirety of the New Testament. This Holy Spirit let him write this one. You do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must pay attention to this word. It is absolutely trustworthy. It is inerrant. It is infallible. What it says shall be, shall be. We need to live our lives in light of that. This is Bible, this book is the very words of God, translated for us, thankfully, from Greek and Hebrew into English, but it is the very word of God. And it is singularly sufficient because where we are living right now is a little bit like going on a trip through the woods with, on a trail that's full of roots and stumps and rocks and false paths and enemies that come and tell us go this way and attack us we are not on a cruise have you noticed it's a little bit like being on that except there's no light you don't have your handy dandy headlights sorry guys dads i know a lot of us we our families just how many flashlights do you need i don't know you know but you don't have it. It's like, it's like going on that trip and, and you don't have any light. You don't have your battery. You don't have your headlamp. And it is pitch black. It's oppressive. That's what a little bit like living the Christian life in this culture is like right now. Pretty bleak. Peter calls it a dark place, a dismal place. He's not saying there's no goodness in the world. 
This is still, as we sang earlier, our father's world. But we live in a culture, and I'm mentioning it a lot lately because I'm just trying to get it into my head. We live in a culture that's telling little boys they're not boys, and little girls, they're not girls. We live in a culture where it is, it is medicine and supposedly the health to name them at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, and it's happening all around us. And that's just one example of what's going on. It's a dark place. I'm sorry. It just it is a dark place. And we are to follow Christ in the midst of this darkness. We are to be his church in the midst of this darkness. And there is no resource to get through it. There is no way we cannot stumble. There is no way we cannot be led astray by false ideas, the impulses of our hearts and so forth, except, except this lamp shining in a dark place. And it shines, and it will never go out. And God has set it before his people in such a way that as we pay attention to it, we can follow Christ. And it will be sufficient. (laughs) Peter doesn't say, pay attention to it, and hopefully that will (laughs) work. No. No. I want, to, I want you to, did you notice the end of verse 19? I, I mean it. I think this is one of the most moving, poetic, beautiful phrases in the New Testament, among many. You pay attention to this prophetic word like a lamp shining in the darkness until the day dawns. What's the day? What day? What day? Oh, the day. He calls it in chapter 3, verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming, the day of God. In which, yes, the heavens and earth will be destroyed. But, verse 13, in that day, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The day of God, the day of Christ, the day of kingdom, the day of when the darkness is sent packing to hell and light and joy and peace and gladness and righteousness reigns on earth every square inch because Jesus is king over all the earth. It's going to happen. The day is going to dawn and that day's going to dawn. I'm sorry, you can't put it on your calendar. Some of you are real calendar people. I'm not one of them. I wish I need help of calendar people. I can't tell you where on your calendar, what year, what day, the day will dawn. But God says it's coming. And God never gets his calendar book wrong. The day's coming. And on that day, the star. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're one of his children, the morning star is going to rise in your heart. That star in the darkness of the night on a dark night when there's no stars and, and it's the middle of, of the night and into the deep of the night and you can't see anything, but there's this one bright light that starts to rise 
What is that star? What's Peter talking about? Turn to Revelation, and we close. Revelation chapter 22. Until the morning star rises in your heart. What are you going to see? What's going what's to rise in your heart? What's going what's to burn in your affections and your emotions? And, and what are you going to see like you've never seen before? What is this morning star? Verse 16 of chapter 22. I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I, Jesus, am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So you pay attention to this book. You insist that your pastor, whatever church you're at, young people in the future, listen, You only go to a church where this book is read, reverence, and where it is taught. And if it's not, you ditch it and you bail. Because you're commanded by Scripture and by your Lord to pay attention to this book. All of us are under that. But you do so with the knowledge that there's a day coming when the book, which shines brightly will be eclipsed. The word of God eclipsed, how's that possible? By the visible glory and presence of the word of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, forgive us for not cherishing and paying attention to your word more. Elevate your word among us. If we've wandered from it, if it's been a while since we've been paying attention, by your spirit, get a hold of us this morning and get us into your book and get your book into us. We pray this reverently. Where we have been looking at lesser lights, false lights, fix our eyes on the light, the lamp of your word. And we do so, we long and look forward to the coming of your Son, the bright morning star. We love you, Lord Jesus. Help us to live for you now like we want to live and are going to live for you then when your kingdom comes in its fullness. Amen.